We're going to do something just a little bit different this morning. Um, The passage that I will be preaching from is uh, Romans chapter 14 and the first six verses of chapter 15. I'm going to have that read for us. And I'm going to have it read for us in the message, um, and partly because that is a, a passage of Scripture that we have a hard time grasping the content of it um, because it was written for the culture of the day. And Eugene Peterson just does a wonderful job paraphrasing it and making it so that we understand it in our culture real well. But you can follow along in your Bibles if you want. Welcome with open arms, fellow believers who don't see things the way you do. And don't jump all over them every time they do or say something you don't agree with, even when it seems they are strong on opinions, but weak in the faith department. Remember, they have their own history to deal with. Treat them gently. For instance, a person who has been around for a while might well be convinced that he can eat anything on the table, while another, with a different background, might assume all Christians should be vegetarians and eat accordingly. But since both are guests at Christ's table... Wouldn't it be terribly rude if they fell to criticizing what the other ate or didn't eat? God, after all, invited them both to the table. Do you have any business crossing people off the guest list or interfering with God's welcome? If there are corrections to be made or manners to be learned, God can handle that without your help. Or, say, one person thinks that some days should be set aside as holy, and another thinks that each day is pretty much like any other. There are good reasons either way. So... Each person is free to follow the convictions of conscience. What's important in all this is that if you keep a holy day, keep it for God's sake. If you eat meat, eat it to the glory of God and thank God for prime rib. If you're a vegetarian, eat vegetables to the glory of God and thank God for broccoli. None of us are permitted to insist on our own way in these matters. It's God we are answerable to. All the way from life to death and everything in between, not each other. That's why Jesus lived and died and then lived again, so that he could be our master across the entire range of life and death and free us from the petty tyrannies of each other. So where does that leave you when you criticize a brother? And where does that leave you when you condescend to a sister? I'd say it leaves you looking pretty silly, or worse. Eventually, we're all going to end up kneeling side by side in the place of judgment, facing God. Your critical and condescending ways aren't going to improve your position there one bit. Read it for yourself in Scripture. As I live and breathe, God says, Every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will tell the honest truth that I, and only I, am God. So tend to your knitting. You've got your hands full just taking care of your own life before God. Forget about deciding what's right for each other. Here's what you need to be concerned about that you don't get in the way of someone else, making life more difficult than it already is. I'm convinced, Jesus convinced me, that everything as it is in itself is holy. We, of course, by the way we treat or talk about it, can contaminate it. If you confuse others by making a big issue over what they eat or don't eat, you're no longer a companion with them in love, are you? These, remember, are persons for whom Christ died. Would you risk sending them to hell over an item in their diet? Don't you dare let a piece of God-blessed food become an occasion of soul poisoning. God's kingdom isn't a matter of what you put in your stomach, for goodness sake. It's what God does with your life as he sets it right, puts it together, and completes it with joy. Your task is to single-mindedly serve Christ. Do that, and you'll kill two birds with one stone, pleasing the God above you and proving your worth to the people around you. 
So let's agree to use all our energy in getting along with each other. Help others with encouraging words. Don't drag them down by finding fault. You're certainly not going to permit an argument over what is served or not served at supper to wreck God's work among you, are you? I said it before and I'll say it again. All food is good, but it can turn bad if you use it badly, if you use it to trip others up and send them sprawling. When you sit down to a meal, your primary concern should not be to feed your own face, but to share the life of Jesus. So be sensitive and courteous to the others who are eating. Don't eat or say or do things that might interfere with the free exchange of love. Cultivate your own relationship with God, but don't impose it on others. You're fortunate if your behavior and your belief are coherent. But if you're not sure, if you notice that you are acting in ways inconsistent with what you believe, some days trying to impose your opinion on others, other days just trying to please them, then you know that you're out of line. If the way you live isn't consistent with what you believe, then it's wrong. Chapter 15 Those of us who are strong and able in the faith need to step in and lend a hand to those who falter and not just do what is most convenient for us. Strength is for service, not status. Each one of us needs to look after the good of the people around us, asking ourselves, how can I help? That's exactly what Jesus did. He didn't make it easy for himself by avoiding people's troubles, but waded right in and helped out. I took on the troubles of the troubled, is the way scripture puts it. Even if it was written in scripture long ago, you can be sure it's written for us. God wants the combination of his steady, constant calling and warm, personal counsel in scripture to come to characterize us, keeping us alert for whatever he will do next. May our dependably steady and warmly personal God develop maturity in you so that you get along with each other as well as Jesus gets along with us all. Then we'll be a choir, not our voices only, but our very lives singing in harmony in a stunning anthem to the God and Father of our Master, Jesus. Hundreds of people here, um, but still, in this room, there are a lot of different convictions about different things, <laughs> and some of you are married to each other, <laughs> and it's amazing, you can be engaged to someone, and you think you know them, and all of a sudden you get married, and you discover what happened here? And you learn that they have convictions that don't line up with yours. And you have convictions that don't line up with theirs. And then, you know, you come to a church and you've got different ideas and philosophies and ways we do things and uh, personal convictions and we all get together and uh, have to figure out how to live with one another with diversity of those kind of convictions and all of that. Christians often disagree. Um, and most often, those disagreements are, are over things that really don't matter in terms of eternity. They don't really matter in terms of somebody coming to know Jesus or going to heaven and those kind of things. Um, they're over things that don't lead people into sin. Well, the early church also dealt with a lot of different convictions. 
maybe even more so than we deal with, and we have our own set of issues that we deal with and, and as Americans and as people right here in McKenzie County and right here at Johnson Corners Wesleyan Church. But I want you to stop and think about the early church for a minute. There was the group in the early church of all new converts. And then there were all the people who had a rich tradition of Judaism. And they'd grown up in the Jewish faith and all of that. You had converted Jews, Jews that had come to Christ and brought all of that rich heritage with them to their faith. And then you had converted Gentiles that knew nothing of the Old Testament, nothing of all the rules and laws and rituals and practices. And they were coming to faith. And how do you put those two kind of people together in one church? That was a big issue in the church. And you had vegetarians and meat eaters in the church. And that doesn't sound like much of an issue. It's not something we squabble about a lot today. But it was a big issue then. Because it all went back to whether you were following all the dietary laws that Moses had established for the Jews in Judaism, and whether as a Gentile you were to adopt all of that, and whether for a Jew, whether you could distance yourself from some of that as a Christian, and there were all kinds of different you know, positions along the way as to what to do with all of that. You had people who observed all the Jewish special days, and you had other people in the church that didn't observe any of them. You had people in the church that observed some of the Gentile special days and other people in the church that didn't observe any of those special days. And you had abstainers from all wine and alcohol and you had people in the church that were wine drinkers. So the question was in the early church and the question was in Romans chapter 14 is how do we maintain good relationships with all of this diversity of ideas and diversity of lifestyles and yet remain effective in outreach and discipling, helping people become good, solid disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, first, the first thing that we need to understand is that there is some basic Differences between God, how God worked with the people in the Old Testament, and how he worked with people in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God um, gave them a pretty much a road map that was very clear, written out, detailed, and all of that, uh, in terms of how they were to live. They had the moral law, the Ten Commandments, um, that basically laid out um, the difference between right and wrong. They had ethical laws that, that flowed from those moral laws in, in terms of how to treat animals, how to treat creation, how to treat one another, um, more of that. Then there was dietary laws. You know, they couldn't eat pork. They couldn't eat lobster. They couldn't, um, there were just a number of things that, that God had laid out for the Jews not to eat. Um, and, and so they had all of that. Then they had the ceremonial law. And, uh, and a lot of the ceremonial law had to do with health issues and, and uh, just different things like that. If you had a boil, how long it could be before you went to church 
and fellowship or, or all those kind of issues were there in, in the law in the Old Testament. And so God um, provided all of that for them. Now, sometimes um, that kind of, when you put it all together, it kind of became an overwhelming list of do's and don'ts. But sometimes we are tempted, and you probably have said this at some point yourself, I just wish God would lay everything out in black and white. <laughs> and I knew exactly what God wanted. <laughs> the Jews had that. God had laid everything out in black and white, and they didn't like it. <laughs> in fact, they didn't do it. And while they weren't doing what he had laid out, they kept making even more rules and regulations that they didn't do. <laughs> So don't ever think that just that sometimes it would just be nice if God would just tell you in black and white every day what he wants you to do. You probably wouldn't do it so well as you think you might. And you probably wouldn't enjoy that as much as you think you would. So the Jews in the Old Testament pretty much had that system and they didn't follow it. And, and really, to become a pious Jew had become basically a hopelessly impossible mission. Not only did they have everything that God had given them, but the Jews kept adding all the rules and defining, you know, like the Sabbath day uh, and that rule. They kept coming down with more rules in terms of how many steps you could take on the Sabbath and, you know, all these other things that you could and couldn't do. And so they had all those rules. And before long, people just looked at the Pharisees and said, I'm not even going to try. Can't do it. People look at us sometimes in the church, and that's their attitude. I'm not even going to try. I just can't do it. I can't pull it off. Sometimes that's because we have added so much to the essentials of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that we have pushed people away before they've gotten to the gospel, the good news. In the New Testament, God did two things. He preserved the moral law, the Ten Commandments, the difference between right and wrong, and then he started laying out basic principles on how to live that you and I have to figure out for ourselves. Um, now, the reason he left the moral law for us is that there are some essentials that are required for you and I to live the Christian life in a way that pleases God. Edward Cornell says, it is better to divide over truth than to unite around error. There are some things that are worth dying for. And, and so basically, when he gets to the New Testament and God gets to dealing with us, he pulls out the moral law, the Ten Commandments, and, and those basic things and tells us these things are for you. And then he starts laying out principles on how to live, and that's where we find ourselves getting in trouble um, with diversity, because principles aren't just rules, but every one of us apply them differently in different circumstances and all of that. And as we grow and mature as a Christian, we even change the way we live out those principles. So Christ set us free from the ethical and the ceremonial and dietary laws and gave us these principles. 
um, which are primarily concerned about your relationship with Jesus. That's God's number one concern. He doesn't want you worried about obeying rule number 612 in the Old Testament. He wants you to focus on keeping your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ healthy. And, but the problem with principles is this. They don't always express themselves consistently among different people in different circumstances and environments. In other words, principles are open to a lot of personal convictions, different ones. So my wife has some convictions that I don't share. And I have some convictions my wife does not share. That's how principles work. Um, so it leaves us open to differences in personal convictions in environment. What I do in one place, I might live out a principle a certain way over here, but I might live it out differently over here. I might need to live my life differently if I was in Germany than if I was in McKenzie County. Because something I do okay here and is just fine as a Christian might be offensive in Germany or in Africa or somewhere else. And so I need to learn those kind of things. And then as I grow in my understanding as a Christian, I'm going to change the way I apply principles also. So here's the principle. One of the principles from um, Romans chapter 14 says, don't cause a brother to sin. If I put that into practice, I'm going to live that out differently based on who I'm with and where I'm at. Because what might cause one person to sin by what I'm doing might not be a temptation at all for this person over here. And so I might be free to do something with this person that I'm not free at all to do with this person because I don't want to be a temptation or a stumbling block to this person. So in that way, I might even be a little bit inconsistent in my own life. But I'm consistent with the principle that God has given to me. Now, I hope all that makes sense. So secondly, I just want to walk down through some of the principles in this passage in Romans chapter 14, um, these are principles that God has laid out for us. And the first one is this. Accept one another. Now, what Paul is saying there is that you and I can accept people that we don't necessarily have differing convictions, that we don't necessarily agree on everything with. But we can still accept them. Um you may not agree with or live the same way as some other Christian or as your spouse or anything else, but you can accept them even when you don't approve of what they're doing or uh, the way they process or think about something. You can still have an open arms in terms of the way you accept them. Um, we are to accept others as Christ accepted us and trust me, I don't think there's any day but what Jesus couldn't look at me and say, well, you got a weird set of convictions there. <laughs> or you don't live your life just as I would live it. Christ has accepted me as I am. And so sometimes we need to accept others. We need to accept others in that same light. That doesn't mean that we don't speak the truth to them in love, but we can accept them and speak the truth. 
but we need to make sure that we aren't distancing people in just the way that we approach them. Here's another thing uh, that comes out of Romans chapter 14, and that is that God has the right to bless and to accept people that you and I wouldn't. <laughs> and sometimes we just need to be slapped beside the head and realize, oh, yeah. And doesn't that frustrate you sometimes? That God blesses people that right now you don't feel like blessing. <laughs> but he has that right. Uh, so we need to get over that. And, and sometimes you and I need to draw a circle that takes in people that are just a little bit different, have different convictions than we do. Because if we draw that circle in too far, pretty soon we're not making an impact on anyone else's life. If, if the only people that get close to me think and smell and act just like me, I'm not impacting very many other people. And if Jesus wants us to go out into the world to make a difference, that means I have to draw a circle of people that I relate to that are is bigger than just the set of personal convictions that I have. Now, this means that we have to talk about essentials and non-essentials. And essentials, those things that um, are Life and death matters. They're, they're, they're matters of whether I go to heaven or not. Um, they, the, those essentials ought to come directly and, and flow consistently through scriptures. Major truths that are taught consistently um, throughout the whole range of scripture. Then there's non-essentials, and those come from a variety of places. Um, they, they come from the way I interpret scripture. Um, and you have a little bit different slant on the way you interpret Scripture, and a lot of that comes from our upbringing and all those kind of things. Um, some of those things uh, are non-essential convictions that we have come from our church tradition. And every one of us, the way we were raised in the church, a, a church has a right to have developed some personal convictions just for their body of believers, for the people that call themselves Wesleyans. We have some convictions that vary a little bit from other people. As a whole, and every now and then, general conferences, as those change, those get changed in the discipline and all of that, and, and it works around. But um, so you have church tradition that affects the way that you and I develop personal convictions. Then there's reason, and of course, experience that, that impacts all of that. The point I want to make in this conversation, in terms of outreach, though. If we're going to make a difference with other people, we have to be very careful not to make the non-essential things essential in the way we live our lives. If, if I have a personal conviction that God has given to me, then I, have, you know, I need that conviction. God has given it to me. But I can't make that such an essential in my life that the only concern I have in your life is that you follow that personal conviction that I have. I need to be more concerned about essential matters, about inviting Christ into your life and, and um, the Ten Commandments and some of those kind of things in my life. St. Augustine said, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. That means that comes back to that acceptance um, that he was talking about. So you and I need to major on the majors in our Christian walk. Um, focusing on non-essentials, what it does is it clouds uh, the real issue for unbelievers. And so they begin to think that, you know, my petty con 
conviction is the really important thing that they need to focus on instead of focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ. What do people know me for? What do people know you for? If, if your life is too much about some of your personal convictions, you're not helping people come to Christ. People need to know you as a person who is passionate about Jesus. Another thing that Paul says in Romans is that everyone is accountable to God. Now, that means that my brother is not primarily accountable to me. <laughs> and I am not primarily accountable to you. We are accountable to each other, but primarily we are accountable to God. Um, and, and so we have to remember that, especially when it comes to some of our private or personal convictions. We are accountable to God for that. And I need to remember that it's not my job to keep all of you happy. And it's not your job to keep everyone around you happy. Your job is to stay accountable to God because he is the one that you will stand before in the judgment. And then Paul says that you and I need to develop and stand by the, con the personal convictions that he's given to us. Now you make your convictions before God and you stand by them. You don't expect other people to, to have your convictions. You've got your own and you need to stand by those convictions. Um, you can talk about them. You can share how they impact your life, but you don't force those personal convictions on someone else. No, those are your convictions, how you live out your faith and how you live out your life. There's a reason that God has given you convictions that he hasn't given to other people. There are some things that I dare not do that you could do because he knows me and he knows what trips me up. And there are some things that um, you dare not do that I can do. And God gives us all personal convictions to help each one of us in our spiritual journey where we are. Um, and then in that passage, in verses 5 through 9, Paul talks about the Lord seven different times. And so what he's really saying there is the key to your personal convictions is your relationship with Jesus Christ. Your personal convictions ought to be helping you in your relationship with Christ. If your personal convictions are not helping you in that, it may be time for some of those personal convictions to be changed. And I do want to tell you that if you're 60 and you still have the same set of personal convictions you had at 20 and you haven't changed any of those, you're probably not growing in your relationship with Christ like you should be. Because Jesus will continue to make changes in your life. As you grow towards him, there'll be things that need to change in your life. And you'll have to develop a new set of personal convictions about how you should live your life to have the best personal relationship with Christ that you can have at this point in your life. So don't expect that once you set have a personal conviction that that's going to be 
there for the rest of your life, you'll keep that and you need to stand by it with faith until God says, hey, this isn't helping you anymore in your relationship with me. Um, And then another thing we have to remember in our personal convictions is that God is big enough to deal with the people that I disagree with. So I don't have to go talk to them. (laughs) I don't always have to correct everyone around me. Um, We don't judge or criticize others in regard to non-essentials. God can do that. Um, God will judge you as you judge other people. And if I'm always critical and always uh, coming down on other people, I'm not looking forward to the judgment day because God is going to treat me the way I've treated other people who have different convictions than I have. Um, Now, in judgment, we know from the scripture that God isn't judging us as Christians for our sin. That has been forgiven. But God does come back and and the Bible tells us clearly that he will judge us for our works. If we've come to know Christ as Savior, um, we're saved. But God is going to judge our works. And part of those works is how we live our life in such a way that we are salt and light to other people. Um, So, you know, God's going to hold me accountable. He's going to hold you accountable. So we don't have to constantly criticize and evaluate one another. Um, God is big enough to do that job all by himself. And then... You and I cannot cause other people to sin. Um, don't do something that your convictions allow you to do that would harm someone else in their spiritual journey. Practice your faith in a way that demonstrates love for the people that are around you. Develop your convictions in a way that will not condemn yourself before God. Every one of us, again, we're going to stand before God. So the convictions you have, you need to develop them in such a way that they will help you when you stand before God. Um, You don't want to be living your life. Um, You want to conduct yourself by doing the things that you can personally do in good faith. Not in a fear, not in questioning whether should I do this as a Christian or not, but do those things that you do in good faith. So, if we're busy in outreach, if we're busy reaching people for Jesus, we have more important things to do than criticize and evaluate each other for all of our differences in diversity and how we live out our faith in those personal uh, non-essential matters. One of the other things I want to say, however, is that the smaller the community or the smaller the base, the more diversity is required. If I was in Minneapolis, and let's just say that I really like Bill Gaither music, and, you know, that was my personal conviction that that was God's music. And there isn't much else other that God has that is his music other than Bill and Gloria Gaither music. I probably could build a church in Minneapolis and have a small circle, and that'd be my personal conviction, and that would be the church's conviction, and all we sang was Bill and Gloria Gaither music. And we could probably have a church in Minneapolis a lot bigger than what we have here, of just Gaither fans, right? Would that work in McKenzie County? 
we probably have two. Myself not being one of them. It wouldn't work because there aren't enough people in all of McKenzie County that just love Gaither music that would come to Johnson Corners to worship to Gaither music. So the smaller the base, the more diversity is required. So you have to broaden your circle. Um, And sometimes the tendency is in rural places to pull that circle in and let our personal convictions even become more predominant. But it's counterproductive. If we want to be effective in outreach, we have to constantly push that circle out, accept people that we don't quite see eye to eye on on things if we're going to have enough people to be able to do anything. Otherwise, you end up with a church of 12 people and it's just not sustainable. So, one of the other things I want to say this morning is this. The culture we live in today will not let us talk to people about essential things in the faith if we have already offended them with non-essentials. That was not true 40 years ago. It is very true today. If we have already offended people over non essential personal convictions, they will never listen to us share the gospel with them. So we have to be very, very careful about that. And then the last thing is if we are busy with outreach, we also have to be very careful that we do live a good moral life to be credible in our faith and witness. And we need to be faithful in our personal convictions so that we have we know we have a personal relationship with God that is on fire. Because if, if I really am struggling in my relationship with Jesus because I'm not living up to the personal convictions he's given me, I'm not going to be effective in sharing my faith. So those two things, I need to live my life well according to the moral laws that God has given everyone And I need to live my life well according to the personal convictions God has given me so I have a faith that is on fire for Jesus.